Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 82. What's next? In our last episode, we took Virginia through the mid-1710s, as Spotswood navigated hostile Indians, hostile pirates, and a hostile House of Burgesses. This was continued into the 1720s over numerous disagreements about both the church and various court appointments, which led, in turn, to an attempted peace between the two factions. Spotswood actually said in his opening speech to the Assembly, which sat between 1720 and 1722, that he hoped to end the distinction that had come about between friends of the country and friends of the governor. He made it clear that he was on the side of the Virginians, but at the same time pointed out that he wanted what was best for Britain too, since they had very similar interests. His words were, quote, I look upon Virginia as a rib taken from Britain's side, and believe that while they both proceed as living under the marriage compact, this Eve must thrive, so long as her Adam flourishes, and I'm persuaded that whatever serpent shall tempt her to go stray and meddle with forbidden matters, will but multiply her sorrow and quicken her husband to rule more strictly over her. Spotswood then went on to discuss things he felt needed to be dealt with, such as the condition of the militia, the need to settle the interior of the country to halt any potential threat that could come from either the French or Indians, and about forming a trade agreement with the Iroquois. The result of all this was a highly productive few years. The Burgesses worked on the creation of two new frontier counties, one of which was called Spotsylvania, in honour of the governor, and approval of Spotswood's plans to negotiate with the Five Nations. After the agreement of some preliminary terms, the governor went north to Albany for a conference which saw representatives from New York, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. This was quite an impressive collection, although naturally the Virginian delegation was the most senior, and Spotswood took the lead in negotiations. He had gained a reputation among the Indians for fair dealings. The deal agreed was that the Iroquois and their tributary tribes, when journeying south, would not travel in Virginia south of the Potomac River or east of the mountains. Likewise, the Virginians and their tributary tribes would not travel north of the Potomac or west of the Blue Ridge. The governors of New York and Virginia would have special permission to grant passports to small groups of no more than ten, which explicitly said how many there were in the group and what the group's purpose was in being there. Those violating the terms of this condition could either be killed or sold into slavery in the West Indies. He might have accomplished a lot, but Spotswood had many who held grievances against him. On April 3rd, 1722, he was removed as Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, to be replaced by one Hugh Drisdale. Since he's been the star of the past few episodes, I'll say a few more words about him before he departs the stage. After his 12-year stint as Governor came to a close, 
he secured a large estate in Spotsylvania, about 85,000 acres. To secure this land, he travelled back to England in 1724 and stayed there for six years, returning to Virginia in 1730. He became a Virginian gentleman and was made Deputy Postmaster General of America, a position he held until 1739 and he died in the next year. Spotswood's 12-year administration was a remarkable period in the history of Virginia. In 1724, the rapid growth of the colony in the period was already noted. He was a great influence on the colony, but he is also a case of what could have been. He spent so much of his early administration at odds with the locals by trying to enforce practices on them that they didn't want. The House of Burgesses actually cautioned the next governor, Drisdale, quote, We observe that several disputes have arisen between your predecessor and the House of Burgesses in relation to some privileges claimed by them, and must desire you would take care there be no invitations made on His Majesty's prerogative, or the ancient usage of your assemblies, and we doubt not but that by your prudent management, all those animosities will cease." End quote. Spotswood failed in much that he attempted. He failed to implement many of his reforms, and indeed his own political ideas of classical Toryism were dead by the time he left office. The 18th century was the age of the Whigs. He failed in many of his attempts to deal with the Indians and to have trade regulations with them. However, he improved the position of public finance and strengthened the military position of Virginia, both on the land and at sea. Spotswood was crucial in the wider geopolitical world, helping bring stability to the Carolinas in the south, organising relations with the Iroquois to the north, and pushing for expansion in the West to head off the French. I've certainly enjoyed covering him, but the march of history inevitably goes on, and we must continue without him. So, in the words of President Bartlett, what's next? Well, the answer is the brief and uneventful administration of Major Hugh Drisdale. Drisdale learnt the lessons of Spotwood's early years, and so was mindful to keep the Virginians on his side. He was very hands-off with the clergy, which had proved something of a third-rail issue for Spotwood. But really, he didn't do anything of note. He died in 1726. So, what's next? Robert Carter, a member of the council, was appointed acting governor until the arrival of Major William Gooch in 1727. His administration was even more uneventful than his predecessors, but I think it is worth noting the high position that a Virginian was able to maintain. He was probably the wealthiest man in the colony, but he was a Virginian through and through. He entered the House of Burgesses at the age of 28 in the session of 1691-92, to later becoming Speaker, and then a councillor in 1699. He remained a councillor for the rest of his life, eventually dying in 1732, 
after six years as president of the council. He was a rather notable figure in Virginia, but I'm not going to go into any more detail about him. Like I say, his was a very uneventful administration. So, what's next? He was replaced by Major William Gooch, a 46-year-old army veteran who had served with the Duke of Marlborough. He was sworn in and brought with him news from England that King George I was dead and King George II was now in control. Gooch laid out his plans when he opened his first General Assembly in early 1728. He said he would support the Church of England, but he would support tolerance for other religions as long as the men had scrupulous consciences. Loyalty to the Hanoverian dynasty was very important, considering it was the first days of the reign of George II. The reign of George I had started off with the Jacobite rising in Scotland, and there was no way to know, at the time, that it wouldn't happen again. This loyalty to the dynasty wasn't absolutism, and was counterbalanced by civil rights. He would enforce the laws of the country to secure a general peace, and he would represent the colony to the government back in London. If this all sounds very friendly, it was. It was very friendly. He was very hospitable with the Virginians and set up one of the most harmonious and successful governorships of the colony. Rather than trying to impose his authority as a representative of royal prerogative, as Spotswood had done in his early days, Gooch encouraged the House of Burgesses to act like a parliament, in a role as protectors of the rights and liberties of the people. The legislature occasionally referred to itself as the House of Commons, seeking association with what it called the Mother of Parliaments, back in Britain. This was crucial to the success of any administration in the country. While the House of Burgesses was the home of Virginian aristocracy, the people felt attached to it. They met in each county and sent their grievances to the House for consideration. So what were the main issues of the early administration of Governor Gooch? To be honest, much the same as those that had affected Spotswood, although a little bit different. There were the same issues, such as tobacco, controlling trade, relationships with the Indians, problems expanding the frontier as colonists moved westwards, the slave trade, and issues with the church. There were also some of the effects of Spotswood. The colonists greatly resented the influence Britain was having on them, intruding through royal vetoes and interfering English merchants. Spotswood represented a fair bit of this intrusion, However, things were changing. While there was a new king, George II, real power in Britain was held by Sir Robert Walpole. Now, sorry not sorry, we're going to go onto one of my classic digressions to talk about Robert Walpole, because we've just got to talk about Robert Walpole. Okay, Walpole was the first Lord of the Treasury and had great influence over the other ministers in the King's government and over the House of Commons. Like I say, he was undisputably the centre of power in Britain, and would remain so for two decades. 
This was unprecedented, and some began to sneer at the amount of power he had. It wasn't right that one man had so much power. This was what the whole glorious revolution had been about, stopping one man from having so much power. It was, ugh, almost continental. It seemed to them very despotic and very French. They saw a comparison with a minister of Louis XIII of France, Cardinal Richelieu, who is now most famous as the villain in Alexandre Dumas's Three Musketeers, but who was a really big deal at the time. He was so important to Louis XIII that he gained the informal nickname Premier Minister. So, in reference to how tyrannical and continental Walpole was in comparison to the liberal English, they disparagingly anglicised the term and called him Prime Minister. Yes, that is the origin of the term Prime Minister. Walpole is referred to as the first holder of the office of Prime Minister, although it didn't really exist, it was just a nickname, almost always, from this point, given to the First Lord of the Treasury. It would take until the 20th century for an actual parliamentary document to refer to the office of Prime Minister. Anyway, why are we talking about this? Oh, right, yes, Walpole was the power in Britain in the 1720s, and he gave control of colonial matters to the Duke of Newcastle, although Newcastle pursued a policy of what can perhaps be termed statutory neglect with regard to the colonies. This was a marked change following the intenseness that had followed Bacon's rebellion, and had characterised the past half century. It would set the tone of imperial policy until the Seven Years' War, which, can you believe, is now less than 30 years away in the narrative. Now that's terrifying. Anyway, this policy mostly removed the problem of royal vetoes, but there was still the issue of interfering merchants, but we shall have to wait until our next episode in a few weeks' time to get into that. There might be a bit of a delay since I'm going to be spending quite a bit of October working on the book, but as soon as that is ready, we shall uh, be ready for that. So, thanks for listening, and what's next? I'm ready to move on to other things, so what's next?